I am E. Stanley Richardson. I am the Alachua County's Poet Laureate. I'm from Alachua County. I grew up in the city of Alachua, which is not far from, from Gainesville, right up the road. So I was born in 1962, March 19th. 1962, so, you know, that's right in the heart of the Civil Rights era. What was that like? I grew up, I like to say, sometimes in the bosom of the Civil Rights Movement, so I grew up with all this this happening, not really knowing what it was, but something was going on around, around me. And the older, older I got, the more, you know, I was became aware of Jim Crow and segregation. People act like this is like a long, long, long time ago. This is just yesterday. I remember... A white water fountain in Alachua. Public schools integrated when I was in the second grade. This is a production by WUFT News. I'm your host, Gabriella Paul. In episode three, we will trace this recent history of desegregation and public education in Florida. And in Alachua County, we'll meet the Black pioneers who first attended formerly white institutions. And importantly, we'll remember what was lost to the Black community during the great pains of integration. This podcast is the result of ongoing conversations with K-12 teachers, university scholars, and community leaders in Alachua and Marion counties. This series is made possible by a Florida Humanities Broadcasting Hope grant. Over 150 years of post-Civil War history can be traced through what is today Lincoln Middle School in Alachua County. But let's start at the beginning. After the Civil War ended in 1865, the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, or the Freedmen's Bureau, was created to assist freedmen and their families during the post-Civil War era called Reconstruction. Two years later, the Bureau would help establish the first school for black students in Gainesville and Alachua County, Union Academy. School starts out educating black children in the area, also supposed to educate black teachers. They had big plans for Union Academy. That's local historian Alfred Aubrey from a presentation he gave on Union Academy at the Matheson Museum in Gainesville. He says during Reconstruction in the 1870s, the federal money dried up and Union was soon seeking additional funds to stay open. The city uh, passed a resolution to to help finance East Florida Seminary and Union Academy. There was only one requirement. And that was that Union Academy had to turn over the land which they sat on. Decades later, with Union Academy's building needing major improvements, the city went about raising funding to build new schools. In 1920, a bond issue was passed to build two new high schools, one for whites and one for blacks. The issue received some pushback from white voters who felt their rights were being violated. But... Then-Principal Aquin Jones says it passed anyway. School boards didn't build fine buildings, brick buildings for blacks during that time when I became principal of the school. No, they didn't do that. We were indebted, it's a long story, but uh, 
We had a very liberal, outstanding school board. In an interview with the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida, Jones says that in addition to the school board, the chairman of the trustee board played a huge part in the process. It was due to Major Thomas, who was very liberal when it comes to uh, education and liberal to what like, not biased at all. William Reuben Thomas, or Major Thomas, is also notable as being a major factor in drawing the University of Florida to Gainesville. The school for black students would be finished in 1923 and would be called Lincoln High School. Originally only for grades 1st through 11th, Jones advocated for a 12th grade to allow students the opportunity to graduate with a degree that allowed them to continue on to universities and colleges. In 1926, Lincoln High School became the second fully accredited African-American high school in the state of Florida and a boon for Jones in recruiting educators. President Florida NM, Florida Normal, pieces like that, Clark calls and all those calls like that, they knew that Lincoln High School was accredited by the state. Those presidents, if they want to recommend teachers, and as a consequence, I, I got a first choice. This building would house Lincoln High School until the United States Supreme Court case Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. The decision, which pushed for an end to segregation, created the option for school systems to maintain the practice of keeping schools separate for white students and black students as long as they were equal. Alachua County chose to build a new high school for black students rather than integrate, and in 1956, Lincoln High School's final building was opened. Former student Salmarie Duncan remembers what the school represented to this community. The entire black community of Gainesville, regardless of logistics or location, what side of town you were on, were all connected through Lincoln High School. In the years following, tensions arose between black and white students over efforts to provide a learning environment for black students in Gainesville equal to that of the white students but it would be an attempt to integrate black and white students that would bring protests from both sides. In November 1969, the Fifth Judicial Circuit of Florida ordered all county school boards to desegregate schools or close. Malia Leiden has more on the end of the line for Lincoln High School in Gainesville. Lincoln High School was known as the heart of the black community. It was one of Gainesville's greatest unifiers. But in January of 1970, the school was forced to close in the middle of a school year due to desegregation. That day was a, a different tone in the air, a different feeling. We were frightened. We had no idea what to really expect the next coming weeks. Former teacher Barbara Mason Smith compares it to a family being evicted from their home. I don't want to say like a battlefield, but they were throwing things and and I just thought, don't let any of them get hurt. Don't let anything drastic happen out there. Just let it be a peaceful march. Let them understand that your teachers can't do anything. We have no say-so in this. This is handed down from the courts. Emotions were high and heartache prevalent. Seniors like Sol Marie Duncan 
realized they would never experience rites of passages like prom or graduation in the same way they dreamed about growing up. Our hopes and dreams and aspirations didn't mean much. Lincoln students were angry they had to transfer to other locations throughout the city, like Gainesville High School. Because Lincoln was the newest high school built in Gainesville, the easiest to retrofit for anything, but they would not require the white students to come to Lincoln, but they wanted to require black students to go to GHS, which was unfair. That was the choice. That was the only option. She says they peacefully protested, but in the end, nothing came of the marches. In a 2012 interview with the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program, Sherwin Henry says it was an adjustment transitioning to a new school. And we find all these years, it's been drilled that the white kids were supposed to be so smarter than us. And we get over to the quote-unquote white school, and we find that we've been bamboozled and hoodwinked. And for Duncan, despite being Lincoln's valedictorian, she did not experience graduation like she imagined. There was no speech, no big commencement with her former classmates, just her name in a paper alongside valedictorians from other schools. Angry, hurt, disappointed, frustrated, but determined that that wasn't going to be the end of my story. The music and chatter that once encompassed the building was silent. The spark lost. But according to Duncan, the tragedy galvanized alumni. It made us more convinced that Lincoln was a vital part of this community and that by closing it, the community was somehow separated and it was meant to be destructive. And we're determined not to let that destroy us as a group. Lincoln alum are forever intertwined by that fateful day in 1970, determined to keep their legacy and love for the school alive. Malia Leiden, WUFT News. The two former Lincoln high schools are still around today. The original that opened in 1926 is now preserved as the A. Quinn Jones Museum and Cultural Center. The one that was closed in 1970 is now Lincoln Middle School. In 1949, six black students sought to enroll at the University of Florida Law School. Hoping to become a lawyer, Virgil Hawkins was one of those students. But Hawkins and five others were denied admission solely on the basis of race. Hawkins sued, and in 1956, UF was court-ordered to admit Hawkins to the law school. Only, he withdrew his application on the premise that the university would integrate its graduate and professional schools. It would be two more years until UF admitted its first black student. His name is George Stark, Jr. One day I was in Atlanta, and um, I read in the paper that Florida had changed its restrictions and um, I applied and to my surprise, I was admitted. Stark, like Hawkins before him, was pursuing his dream of becoming a lawyer. It had been four years since the Brown v. Board decision, something that intensified white backlash and resistance in the South. 
so much so that in Gainesville, police officers were tasked to follow and protect Stark. I was under an extreme amount of pressure because it was a, a gross embarrassment not to finish. Stark withdrew after three trimesters. And um, it, it took me about 20 years before I could even mention the University of Florida or the law school. Although Stark didn't earn his degree, he did pave the way for other black students to attend and graduate from the University of Florida. Following in his footsteps, W. George Allen was the first black student to earn a UF law degree in 1962. To be the first to graduate in the state of Florida uh, as a person of color opened the doors for all uh, black people to attend the school of their choice at the um, university, college and university level. Uh, we had had some success with getting some students into undergraduate school or, or really in, into uh, secondary school because of Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. But no one had graduated from a previously white institution in the state of Florida. The same year Allen graduated, the university enrolled six black undergraduate students. Among them was Stephen Mickle, who would become the first black undergraduate student to graduate from UF three years later in 1965. And so in talking to George, he was at the law school at the time. He encouraged me to enroll at the University of Florida undergraduate school which means I came as a sophomore in undergraduate school. I knew that I'd be entering a school where I'd have no black classmates or no other blacks there who were going and taking the same courses I was taking. These are the names that are often remembered with the integration of UF. Virgil Hawkins, George Stark Jr., George Allen, and Stephen Mickle. But there were trailblazing women too, like Daphne Duval. Kitty Oliver, Evelyn Moore, and Hazel Land. All of these people played a role in the early integration of UF. Despite a campus culture that did not support, represent, or embrace black culture. After nearly a decade of fighting for a seat at the table, students turned their focus toward demanding a better campus experience for black students and faculty too. The black student population at UF organized as the Black Student Union and formed a list of six demands to present to the administration that included increasing black student enrollment, hiring full-time and tenure-track black faculty, and creating a black cultural center. It would all come to a head on Thursday, April 15, 1971, during a sit-in protest and demonstration that is now remembered as Black Thursday. Here, Malia Leiden takes us back to that fateful day in UF's history. When I was moving in, I had my roommate come in. You know, being the friendly guy that I am, I turn around, Hi, my name is Joe. That's Joseph McLeod, a former University of Florida student in a 2009 interview from the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. And I held out my hand to shake his hand, 
He looked at me, turned around, never saw the guy again. This is 1971, and McLeod is discussing an interaction in a time when racial tensions were high. Black students were outnumbered, 343 to 20,000 white. McLeod says that disparity in population contributed to the black student union's push for their rights. We got together, had meetings over a period of time, and came up with a set of demands. One, for the university to recruit more black students, to open the Institute of Black Culture, to recruit more black faculty, and there were maybe four or five other demands that we had. On April 15th, 1971, students went to Tigert Hall to talk with then-president Stephen C. O'Connell about these demands. Another student, Betty Stewart Fullwood, says they tried three times to have a conversation. I was just drawn to it because it was so relevant at the time. Carl Smart joined because he wanted to fight for minority rights and improve the campus. It wasn't as confrontational maybe as it appeared. Just it's time to make this statement and time for people to listen up. Gwen Francis, another student, says the administration wasn't having it. We had a sit-in, and we sat in his office, probably maybe for about 45 minutes, and he proceeded to have us arrested. So the buses came, and they took us all down to the Lachua County Jail. Over 60 students were arrested or suspended. Smart says it was a difficult experience. Very frightening, is all I recall. It was scary, but we were all there together, so it was helpful. They got out that same day, but the campus community wasn't satisfied and called for amnesty for those suspended and arrested. O'Connell refused, stating it would show the sit-in was acceptable conduct. This denial led over 100 black students and supporters to withdraw from the university. Fullwood was one of them, but came back after a semester or two and graduated. When she arrived, she noticed a shift had occurred as O'Connell and the administration warmed to change. That fall term is when we had more African-American faculty and staff to be recruited to come on. And I'm sure there were more students that were admitted as well. It has been 50 years since that fateful April 15th. But with nearly a year of racial unrest nationally, a lurking question is how far the university has come in improving the Black student experience. Trouble in my way. Trouble in my way. I have to cry sometimes. I have to cry sometimes. So much trouble. Trouble in my way. I have to cry sometimes. In the years following desegregation and the issues leading up to Black Thursday, changes began to take place at the University of Florida and across the state. Some of the Black Student Union's six demands were acted upon immediately, like the creation of the Institute of Black Culture in 1971, which was dedicated in 1972. The University Senate also worked to increase the number of Black students and faculty on campus. The BSU students had also asked that 500 of the 2,800 incoming freshmen be Black a demand that UF has yet to meet. University of Florida professor of law, Kenneth Nunn, says the students' demands were not calling for a diversification of Florida, per se. What they wanted was they wanted a base of community empowerment at the university. So they wanted an IBC, then they wanted 
a African-American studies department that would be staffed with African-Americans. They weren't looking for diversity as much as they were looking for community control. One federal strategy to increase black enrollment, called affirmative action, was rolled out with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and in an executive action signed by President Lyndon Johnson in 1965. Affirmative action refers to a set of policies and practices within a government or organization that seeks to include particular groups based on their gender, race, sexuality, creed, or nationality in areas in which they are underrepresented, such as education and employment. There were two kind of uh, legal theories that justified affirmative action. One was we're going to do it because what we're trying to uh, accomplish is to make up for the previous exclusion of people into these spaces. So that's what's known as remedial affirmative action. In 1973, the University of Florida would develop its first affirmative action plan to address its race-based gap in enrollment. But then came the 1978 Regents of the University of California versus Bakke Supreme Court case. So the Supreme Court decided the Bakke case and they said that remediation, that is fixing a problem that was caused by uh, white supremacy and Jim Crow laws in the United States is not the reason why we're, we're allowing excluded part people into these institutions. The reason why we allow them in is because of diversity. That's the only legitimate reason we can allow them in. The case upheld affirmative action, but it weakened it as well. The decision gave states the power to decide whether or not to ban affirmative action. This came to a head in Florida in 2000. The One Florida Initiative creates a university system with greater diversity, with greater diversity, where minority students get both access and finances they need based on their talent and work, not the color of their skin. That's former Florida Governor Jeb Bush laying out his One Florida Initiative during the 2000 State of the State Address. Bush's plan ended race-based university admissions and replaced it with the Talented 20 program, which grants automatic admission into one of Florida's public universities to students who graduate from high school in the top 20% of their class. While the plan was criticized by opponents as a political maneuver, Bush said one Florida would transcend affirmative action. This year, more minority students will be admitted to our university system than last year. This year, the agencies that report to me will do more business with minority-owned businesses than the previous year. And we will not take one step back in the struggle against racism and discrimination. A few years after the One Florida Plan went into place, Dr. Bernard Matchin took over as the 11th president of the University of Florida. We just assumed that because UF had become much more selective in its admission processes, and since affirmative action was no longer possible, we were going to see a drop in those in those pools. But Matchin says their assumptions were wrong. As they took a closer look at the admissions process, they found UF was attracting a diverse group of applicants and even admitting a diverse pool of students. The drop-off came from admission to enrollment. We were not getting these students who had been admitted enrolled at the university. Matchin says the university tried to figure out exactly why this was happening. Then we went back into our admissions portfolio and took a look at what was happening. And 
no surprise to anyone that uh, economic factors were becoming so prevalent and they were keeping students who met all the academic criteria to become students here from enrolling at the University of Florida. So in 2006, Matchin started the Florida Opportunity Scholars Program to address the issue. The program supports low-income undergraduate students who are first in their families to attend college. More than 5,100 students have received scholarships from the program in its existence. But while Hispanic enrollment has risen in the past two decades at the University of Florida, black enrollment has declined or plateaued from a peak in 2007. According to 2021 data from the University of Florida, less than 6% of the total student population identifies as black compared to the state of Florida, which has a roughly 17% black population. You have students like Imani Jackson say this disparity in student population plays out in the classroom. I do observe um, certain spaces where I may be the only black person, I may be the only person of color, I may be one of a few females, I may be the only female in certain contexts. Jackson participated in the Black Storytelling Project, conducted by Dr. Yewanda Addy, a doctoral student at UF focused on cultural communication. The project collected first-person narratives from black students on the core aspects of their experiences at the University of Florida related to race, representation, inclusion, and community. Karen Coker also shared her experiences for the project. Doing this PhD, I knew that as a black student, I would need support. And where would that support come from? Where would that support look like? Who would be part of my experience of support? According to a 2022 university task force report, UF has seen a slight increase in new black faculty hires, as well as the number of full-time tenured or tenure track black faculty. But there's more to be done. In 2020, following the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, President Fox announced 15 goals that UF would pursue in creating a more equitable campus. Some goals focused on documenting UF's relationship to race through efforts like establishing task forces and unveiling historic markers. In September of 2021, UF installed a historical marker on campus honoring four black pioneers in the first decade of UF's integration. President Kent Fox spoke at the ceremony. For the rest of us, uh, it really is important to know that history, that this university uh, did not always have uh, students that were black, students of color, uh, did not always have women, um, and it wasn't long ago. Other parts of the plan eliminated the gator bait cheer at sporting events and pledged to organize a more diverse group of guest speakers on campus. Still more parts of the plan promise an effort in recruiting, supporting, and retaining students, faculty, and employees of color. This podcast is made possible by a Florida Humanities Broadcasting Hope Grant. It was inspired by a series of community workshops called Decolonizing Representations, led by Dr. Amanda Concha Holmes, who also serves as a director of this grant. A special thanks to all of the experts and community members who contributed to this podcast. Saul Marie Duncan, Barbara Mason-Smith, 
Betty Stuart Fullwood, Carl Smart, Quinn Francis, and Kenneth Nunn. Malia Leiden contributed to the reporting in this episode. Thanks to the Matheson Museum, which provided a recorded lecture by Alfred Aubrey and hosted events associated with the production of this podcast. Thanks also to the Black Storytelling Project, led by Dr. Yewanda Addy, who provided the interviews with Imani Jackson and Karen Coker. The Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida provided tape of archival interviews with Aquin Jones, Sherwin Henry, George Stark Jr., George Allen, Stephen Mickle, and Joseph McLeod. This episode was written by Ryan Vasquez, who's also the executive producer. And I'm your host, Gabriella Paul. For more information, please visit wuft.org slash broadcastinghope. Jesus, he will fix it. He's gonna fix it after a while.